0: Morning. Good morning, North Boulevard. I'm glad to see you. You know, sometimes when a minister just disappears, it's not a good thing. Um, and all the speculation and all that sort of stuff. So I just want to be straight up with you and tell you why I've missed four weeks in a row. I was raptured. And, uh, and you weren't. I, would, I just want to tell you that. But there was a mistake and I was sent back. And so you get uh, a lot more years with me, it looks like. So Julie had planned this huge vacation for me for my 60th birthday. And two weeks before we left to go on vacation, I got like the worst case of bronchitis I've ever had. It was really seriously sick. And uh, we spent two weeks trying to keep me out of the hospital. It was not COVID. I was tested three times. And so I didn't get COVID, but it was really, really rough. And uh, I don't know that we ever mentioned it to you. You know, where did David go again? A lot of times for a minister, it's like, okay, I guess he did something and we don't, nobody wants to talk about it. We'll move on next. You know, I remember old Daniel, he was a good preacher or David, whatever his name was. Anyway, I'm back, and I'm really glad to see you. A lot of you were just super kind to us, especially who knew we were sick. We got a lot of food brought over and just super, super stuff. And we're just reminded again how much I love my church. I really do love you guys. You're the best church in the world, and I really mean that. And I'm glad to be back with you. And it's also cool, isn't it, to have, uh, I said this in the Thursday briefing, you can throw a rock in any direction at North Boulevard and hit a preacher. I'm not suggesting you try that. I'm just telling you. That that's how many capable uh, leaders we have at North Boulevard. So Hunzi was supposed to preach a couple times anyway. It just worked out really well. Most of this series he planned, and so I'm kind of glad to plug into what he's doing with the IM series. We'll do it in just a second here. Before we do, uh, many of us like to bundle our money when we're helping people who've been through a disaster. So we want to give you that opportunity for those who went through the tornadoes a little bit more than a week ago. So God willing, on January the 9th, that Sunday, we'll give you an opportunity if you'd like to give to um, help out those who, especially in West Tennessee and Southeast Arkansas, no, Northeast Arkansas, Southwest Missouri. And Kentucky especially. So what we'll do is we'll take up a special offering. No pressure on you, but a lot of us like to do that. We like to do it together. And some of the money we know will go to disaster relief and we're still, I think Joe Roberts is kind of checking out what might be a good use of some of the other money. We'll probably give some to some local churches and we may give some to some other organizations. We're not sure just yet, but we wanted to go on and announce that we will do something. God willing, on January the 9th, I think last time we did this, even on just short notice, I don't remember the final figure, but something like $60,000 were given for tornado victims, so that's who you guys are. And um, just one more reason why it's a privilege to be able to preach to you. Albert Einstein, uh, let's do this first. You're wondering about the candle, perhaps. Albert Einstein, look at there. My thing is stuck. Okay. Albert Einstein, for most of his working years, had a portrait behind his desk of Michael Faraday. So Michael Faraday is uh, an important enough scientist, a physicist, that for eight years, he was the image on the British 20 pound note. He was uh, a physicist who is considered the father of the laws of electromagnetism. In a sense, every electric motor you use today goes back to him. Although he was such a theorist that he really didn't care about the practical applications. Faraday was an unlikely physicist. His father was a traveling ironsmith and his mother was just a housemaid. So he didn't have money for an education. He took a job at the age of 14 as a book binder, but he read every book that he bound. And he especially liked the science books. And so over the course of several years, he educated himself in physics enough that he became a full bird professor of chemistry and physics at the university in London. In fact, several times he was offered the presidency of the Royal society, which goes back to 1660 and is the oldest scientific organization in the world. He has all sorts of medals and awards and whatnot, all because he just loved science and he Every year at Christmas time gave a series of lectures open to the public in London. In the year 1860, he did a series of lessons called The Chemical History of a Candle. Which, by the way, not a real like attractive title, <laughs> but he drew thousands of people to these lectures. And he made the argument, this is what I want you to hear. Faraday made the argument that all of physics, or again, as he called it, natural philosophy, could be summed up in the light of a candle. So six lectures on the mathematics, the physics, and the chemistry of a candle. I can't help but think that Faraday was not drawn to the light of a candle for an even deeper reason. He was, you see, a very profound believer in Jesus Christ and not just a believer in Jesus Christ, but Michael Faraday was actually a member of the Church of Christ in London and not just a member of the Church of Christ, he was a deacon in the Church of Christ and eventually became an elder in the Church of Christ in London, England, as the world's, at that time, leading physicist. And not just any Church of Christ, but one of those churches of Christ that takes things really seriously, so seriously, that on one occasion, Queen Victoria, uh, arguably the most influential queen in all of history, hosted a brunch For our man, Michael Faraday, on a Sunday, he attended the lunch and his church withdrew fellowship from him for missing services that day. Yeah, that's a kind of a serious church there. He was such a gentle man. By the way, he turned down all sorts of offers because he wanted to die. Listen to this. He wanted to die a poor man because he never wanted to be corrupted by money. And so in his gentility, he began coming back to church and he made it right. And eventually he was restored not only as a member, but also as an elder. He makes the observation about his Jesus, that Jesus, the light of the world, offers, and I quote, peace as a gift from God. It is God who gives it. Why should we ever be afraid? God's unspeakable gift in his beloved son is the ground of no doubtful hope. In other words, if the whole universe can be modeled in the light of a candle, perhaps it can also be modeled in none other than Jesus Christ, the light of the world. John was fascinated, the apostle John, with Jesus as a light. And so 16 times the gospel of John uses a light as an image or metaphor for either Jesus or John the Baptist or something related to either of them. Here's just a sampling of some of the ways that the gospel of John, which uses the concept of light more than any other gospel, talks about the light of Jesus. He opens his gospel by saying that Jesus is the light of all humanity and has overcome the darkness. In chapter 3, John explains that with Jesus, light has come into the world and you have to make a decision. Either you walk in darkness now, or you choose Jesus and you walk in the light. Jesus actually says about John the Baptist that he was a lamp, but then Jesus says, but I'm even bigger than he is. So, even more light has come with Jesus. In chapter 11, Jesus says, you walk during the day because you need the light to see, and then he compares himself to that daylight. In chapter 12, Jesus says to the apostles, I'm here. While I'm here, you've got light. Walk while I'm here and while you have the light and believe that I am the light. And then chapter 12, I've come into the world as a light so that you should not stay in darkness. And then chapter 9, I'm dropping back because I'm headed for our text, which is chapter 8 and verse 12, where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Night is coming. And then this is our verse, John 8 and verse 12, where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk In darkness but we'll have the light of life. You know all this imagery of light could go past us so quickly that we actually miss what's being said. I mean you use the image so many times that it kind of loses its power I'm afraid. So I want to take a minute and I want to unpack what it means to say that Jesus is the light of the world and I'm going to do the lightest version of physics that you'll ever hear uh, in part because I'm just a preacher. But I do want you to think for a moment about what it means to say that Jesus is the light of the world. So what is it that light offers us? What does light do for us? It's important to know that the objects that you see will never make physical contact with your brain. Or I'll put it this way, if they ever do, you're in trouble. You see a bottle of water or a candle here. Well, that will never actually make contact with your brain. And yet you perceive it even now. You see it even now. We'll take the bottle of water. The reason you see it, though it never will make physical contact, odds are this bottle of water will never make physical contact with you in any way. But certainly not with your brain. The reason you perceive it is because light is bouncing off of it and entering your eyeballs, which then transduce it into electrical currents that go into the brain and then the brain images it. And without the light, you have no idea what's around you. Without the light, you don't know where things are. You don't know whence they come. Without the light, you probably have not much clue what to do with the things that you bump into. I mean, think about what it's like when you come home late at night before you turn the light switch on. So I want to show you some pictures here. Julie and I years ago went and visited Mammoth Cave, which is now a national park. Mammoth Cave is the largest known cave in the world with more than 420 miles so far explored. When you go in the cave, you see all these like really, really cool names of sections of the cave. There's the rotunda room, the bottomless pit, the uh, Gothic Avenue the river sticks. And then I'll show you a few pictures. So this is Violet City. It's inside the cave. And you just see how beautiful it is. How, when you think how nature could create something like this, when you look a little bit further, there's what they call the drapery room. So this is where the calcium has through the centuries built up to create what just looks like this fantastic pedestal of columns. Here's one of my favorites, the gypsum flower. So the gypsum flower is just this very delicate thing that's, again, it's the consequence of who knows how many years of gypsum. Now, I guess you figured something out. When you go to Mammoth Cave, one of the things that the rangers love to do is to get you down in a cave and turn off the lights. You ever had that experience in a cave? So you can close your eyes right now. Some of you have been doing it for Five minutes. And when you close your eyes, you still see red. And in fact, the matter is, when you close your eyes, you get these perceptions on the backs of your eyelids that are really fun to look at, you know, all these little like perception things that you can do. But that's not what you experience when you're in a cave and the lights go off. Like it's a darkness that's indescribable. It's like. You know, when they say, I can't even see my hand in front of my face, that doesn't quite capture it. It's more like the same thing your hand would see if it was trying to look at something. There's literally nothing when the lights go off in the cave. So were you to wander around the 420 explored miles of Mammoth Cave, you know what would happen to you? You wouldn't make it very far. You'd be bumping into things. You would fall into the River Styx. Who knows where you'd be carried down to Hades or wherever it is. So that's why we like light. Because what light does is it tells us not about light. It tells us the truth about the things that are around us. Light exposes the reality in which you already live. Without light, you don't know about the reality. You don't know how to interpret the thing you just bumped into. You won't know what to do with the sound that you heard because without light, you can't identify what it is. Without light, your head would bump into the gypsum flower that has been there for who knows how many years and you'd be the one who broke it. So light actually helps us to perceive the reality in which we already live. That's one reason why Michael Faraday loved the candle, because it exposed the reality, he said, of the entire universe. Let me give you one more quick illustration. And this is important because it helps us to understand what we mean when we say Jesus is the light. We don't simply mean look at Jesus. What we mean is Jesus gives us the proper interpretation of everything in the room. And without Jesus, you're in darkness in the room. You bump into stuff, but you don't know what they mean. Here's just a quick illustration. So Tom has been told that there's a feast coming this Saturday at uh, Christmas but he can't see the feast. So he takes a candle. He lights his candle. When he lights his candle, the whole room lights up. Now suddenly the light of the candle approaches the feast, bounces off the feast, hits his eyes, and now he knows, oh, that's a turkey. He probably has a pretty good guess where it comes from. And he knows what to do with it. He's going to figure it out really soon, what to do with this turkey. But as long as he has light, he understands the room around him. That's what Jesus does for us. That's really important. To say he is the light of the world is to say, with Jesus, you will know what to do with microphones. And without Jesus, you won't know what to do. You'll do all kinds of garbagey stuff with them. With Jesus, you'll know how to use an iPhone. I'm not talking about technology. I'm talking about what its potential for virtue is. And without Jesus, you'll use it for the filthiest, most depraved things available. That's what will happen. Jesus gives you the light to show you how to use everything that's in the room. And without him left on your own, it'll be nothing short of a disaster. I'm the light of the world, he says, whoever follows me. Let me give you just a couple of quick illustrations. I just finished on vacation, by the way, uh, Carl Truman's book, uh, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, which is a fantastic book, by the way. Uh, So he, Truman, who's a professor of uh, religion at Grove City College, Truman says, why is it that those of you who are 70 or 80, Why is it that in your younger days for me to say that a man can be a woman was totally incoherent, but now entire swaths of Americans believe that they just assume that it's true. Truman's his question is what changed that made something that was incomprehensible suddenly, not only comprehensible, but in some places mandated. And what he says is at the end of the day, North Americans swapped out a Christian view of the self, for a non-Christian view of the self. So in the non-Christian view of the self, I exist for pleasure. The greatest good is the pleasure of myself. That's what I'm going to seek in life. And that's one reason why, you know, we're we're sort of told, you know, you don't want to dishonor somebody by using the wrong pronoun or something. What they're saying is you're robbing them of the only pleasure that life has to offer, which is who they are, their self-identity. Well, Truman talks about this in a way that helps you to understand that to say pleasure is the highest ends of the self is to miss the great biblical truth. For in the great biblical truth we're taught in many texts, but here's one, Ephesians 1, we were predestined, adopted in Christ for, for God's will. For what purpose? To praise His glorious grace. In other words, Jesus shines the light on the self. He shines a light in the darkness of the cave of the self to say, no, the highest good is worshiping your God. That's why you have a self. Anything other than this, you're going to bump into and trip. Anything other than this is you, but a guide to your own destruction. So, Jesus shines a light on what it means to be myself. Let me give you a couple of other illustrations. We move quickly. My stuff, all my toys, my money, my wealth, and so forth. What's the point of it? Well, in darkness, it's just more and more greed. It's what I can get out of it. Remember, if the self is all about pleasure, money is about serving that pleasure. But I want you to know in the Bible, Jesus shines a light on wealth. And it may not be what you think. Here's how Paul summarizes Jesus' teaching. Paul says, you will be made rich in every way, so you can be generous on every occasion. And as a result, people will thank God. I just want to say this. Wealth is not a bad thing. It's a great thing. God gives us wealth. Some of you do have, you have lots of wealth. In fact, uh, I was talking with somebody uh, a couple of weeks ago. Just, just kind of as a little quick el- illustration. So when Dr. Carl Adams founded National Health Corporation, not only could he not have seen how many North Boulevard people would end up at NHC, but he could have had no idea how many millions of dollars would be given to the work of North Boulevard by employees of NHC. I mean, really it's so many of the awesome things that we've been able to do financially here are as a result of people who work for NHC, who've who've been given boatloads of wealth because of their good work. So it's not the wealth that's the problem. What Paul says is it's what you do with your wealth. That poses the challenge. So Jesus comes to show us that the right and proper use of wealth is generosity. Now that's what what he does. He wants us to know that having a lot of stuff is fine if you're using it for the service of God. It's only when you're using it for your own pleasure that you're now in the darkness of a cave with no lights. A guide, but a guide to your own destruction. Here, our relationship with others. So most of us are born selfish. I think it's part of the fall of humanity that we're born selfish. And so for many of us, we measure our relationships by how we feel about them. This explains why there are so many people who are unfaithful in their relationships. If my relationship doesn't satisfy me, I just leave. Because I'm measuring my relationship by how it makes me feel. It's about me. By the way, more than half of the divorces in America are initiated by women. Who in many cases no longer have the feeling they want And the relationship was just about them. Also with men, I'm not picking on you women, but I'm just suggesting that for a lot of us men, it's a surprise to hear that. And how many people have abandoned their own children? Because at the end of the day, the relationship was only about them. And when it no longer worked for them, they were willing to abandon people to whom they'd made lifelong commitments. Here's how John corrects this in the light of Jesus. It says, nobody's ever seen God, but if you love one another. So if you love the people you're with, genuine love. God lives in us. And watch this, God's love is made complete in us. So even difficult relationships in the light of Jesus are actually opportunities for me to become what God wants me to be. he doesn't promise that every relationship is going to make me happy, but he does promise that in every relationship, I have the opportunity to become like Jesus. So, in the light of Jesus, relationships become about the love of God. Just one more, and then we're going to move on. Our hardships, our sufferings, our pain, our disappointments. In the world's view, in the darkness, what can you do other than resent it? Other than be angry? Other than say, if there's a God, why is he letting me go through this? But here's what you know. In the light of, listen, everybody's going to suffer. Everybody's going to suffer. The only question is, how do you get to use your suffering? If you're an unbeliever, you're going to suffer. Maybe as much as believers, maybe less than, I don't know. But here's the deal. You've got nobody to redeem it. A believer in Jesus suffers maybe every bit as much, but a believer in Jesus has Jesus to redeem our suffering. That's why James can say, be thankful, be happy about your trials, because you understand that your trials produce perseverance and perseverance produces maturity. For the believer, our hardships are the equivalent of a spiritual virtue gymnasium. It's where we earn our muscles. It's where we become mature. You don't become mature without stress. And so the hardships of life, the things that we have to go through. For the Christian, now we know what it means. When Jesus shines his light on my hardships, I can find joy in them. Just looked up there and saw that. You know, they told me that the steroids they were giving would make my stomach stick out. And I'm sure that's what that is. <laughs> Is it, could y'all put something else up on the walls over here? This is like, that's really brutal to turn over there and see that. Not, my goodness, what happened to me? I don't, I don't know if it's going to be okay. I'm not sure. It's, we need a little light of Jesus on that, don't we? Okay. Here's what he says. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light Of him. Now, here's the real problem that most of us face. I know that you believe, most of you believe Jesus is the light of the world. Here's the real problem that we have. Because we're fallen humans, we're sinners, various levels of maturity. Because we're fallen humans, our vision is distorted. All of ours. Our vision is distorted. It's unreliable. Our vision sometimes is um, a little myopic that Sometimes our vision is cloudy and we just can't see, but we want to. We want to, but we can't. The ESV translates First Corinthians 13, 12 this way. I like it. Now he says, we see in a mirror dimly. This is how the old King James had put it. Now we see in a glass darkly. That is, we know something's there, but we can't quite make it out. So here's my question to you. How do you live in the light of Jesus? How do you follow the light of Jesus when it's not always clear what you're supposed to do? Because that's probably what most of us are feeling. It's actually, y'all know, I mean, it's been a tough couple of years. It's been tough for every reason. I think by my count, North Boulevard has lost six members to complications that at least involved COVID. It may be more than that, six that I know of including one of our members who just last week passed from COVID. With the politics, the lockdowns, the angry, you know, siblings, all that we've all been through, this is probably a good time for us to say, okay, what I, I believe is the light, but what do I do when it's not always clear what to do? What do I do when it's actually really painful? What do I do when it's kind of still dark outside? And that's what I want to end with. I want to address this one. What do I do to follow Jesus when I have to admit that my eyesight is not 2020. Let's start here. We can do this quickly. Next week, uh, no, uh, the first week of January, God willing, I'm gonna preach a series on Hebrews 11, the, all the heroes of Hebrews 11. And after Hebrews 11 comes Hebrews 12. And in Hebrews 12, the Hebrew writer says, now that we have this cloud of witnesses, the, the guys he just mentioned, the heroes in chapter 11, he says, let's run this race with patience fixing our eyes on Jesus. Here's my first point. When you're not sure what to do, don't take your eyes off Jesus. Don't take your eyes off the light. That's really important. There are gonna be a lot of distractions in the world, a lot of sounds, a lot of threats. There are gonna be a lot of reasons for you to take your eyes off of Jesus. When you do, you will veer into the darkness. It happens every time. When I was a student at Freed Hardeman, my last year, senior year, So Freed Hardman is south of Jackson, Tennessee, but at that point, about three-hour drive away. was still 55 speed limit. And uh, I had been invited by the Christiana Church to come speak to a youth event on a Saturday morning starting at 8 o'clock, which, by the way, I'm not sure why you would do a youth event on a Saturday morning at 8, but they did. And I had a test on a Friday afternoon, so I decided I'm going to drive Saturday morning. That means I have to leave at 4 a.m. Well, at that point, I decided to go Highway 100. 840 wasn't even here. So I'm going to go Highway 100. And I had not driven very far. I got up at 4 o'clock when I entered the thickest fog I've ever seen. It was terrible fog. And I I just suddenly had to slow down. We have no cell phones there in those times. There was no way for me to contact Bob Summers, who was coordinating. Some of you know Bob. And I knew, okay, I'm going to be late. I'm not going to make it. In fact, I may not even make it at all. And as I was stressing over, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I've driven, I've gone from 55 down to about 15. This big 18 wheel truck pulls out in front of me and it dawns on me. Okay. I know that guy has driven highway 100, a hundred times. So what I did was I pulled up as close as I safely could to the back end of that truck. And I put my eyes on his taillights and I followed his taillights all the way to Franklin, Tennessee. And I pulled up at the youth event at 7. 59 a.m. Bob Summer, by the way, was standing on the front porch of the church pacing back and forth when I pulled up. But I made it because I never took my eyes off the light of the truck. What I'm suggesting is that when times get tough, if you'll fix your eyes on who Jesus is, don't take your eyes off of him. He'll get you through it. And I shared this with you guys, uh, I don't remember how many years ago, three or four years ago maybe. One of the um, most riveting books that I've ever read. It's a book. This is her pen name. She's protecting her family. Catherine Maurice is her pen name. The book is entitled Let Me Hear Your Voice. It's the story of a mother who had a, the perfect daughter for the first year of her life, a little extrovert living a normal life, when suddenly the daughter began to become quiet and got quieter and quieter and quieter and eventually was diagnosed by her second birthday with a very severe form of autism. And Maurice in her book describes, oh my goodness, many of us have been through, you know, the pain of of children who who have problems, whether they brought it on themselves, or in many cases, they didn't bring it on themselves. Um, You know, here's something I've learned about parenting. If you're a young parent, you are never happier than your saddest child. You're never happier than your saddest child. And when you have a child who's really hurting, it's with you 24-7. It never leaves. And so she talks about the struggle she had trying to rescue her daughter. By the way, she had another child who is also autistic. She talks about the struggles to rescue the child and so forth in the book. She tried a lot of things. And she tells a story how that one night she realized that she was not going to make it unless she changed how she related to God and to the world, she was not gonna make it. And her daughter needed her, her husband did too. So she tells this story. I'm just gonna read to you real quickly what she says. She says, it was around one o'clock in the morning. I couldn't sleep, I couldn't cry, I had no tears left. I was spent, exhausted, but still wound to the breaking point with fear. There was a candle on my desk. I lit the candle and I gazed into its soft glow. Mark and the children were asleep. I sat in a small circle of light and i tried to feel the presence of God. Lord, I need your help so badly. All along, she said, I've been asking that God would change the reality on the ground. Heal my daughter, make the diagnosis wrong, do something to save her, make her different. But not this night. This night was different. I had to ask for something else. Instead, she said, I prayed this prayer, Lord, fill me with your strength your peace, give me the ability to go on. And then she says, there was one more thing I had to ask. I raised my clasp hands, I bowed my head, and I whispered the words that my heart hated. And I said, nevertheless, thy will be done. And I was flooded instantly and impossibly With comfort. When you fix your eyes on Jesus, it may take a while, but he will give you what you need. So when we have a hard time seeing the light, don't take your eyes off of it. Let me give you two more. We're going to stop. This is America's favorite verse now, it appears. Uh, Jeremiah 29, verses 11 and 12, where God speaks to Jeremiah, to Israel, and says, I'm going to pull you back. And what he says is, I know the plans I have for you. I want to underscore the word either. He doesn't say, I know the plans you have for you. He says, I know the plans I have for you. That you may have plans for your life. God has plans for your life, and his plans are better than your plans. So he says, I know my plans, and my plans are not to hurt you. My plans are to prosper you. God doesn't hate you. He's not mad at you. He loves you. He's got great plans for you. So here's what I want you to say. If you know that God has great plans for you, you ought to be able to say, I'm going to trust that Jesus knows what he's doing. Trust the light of Jesus. Look, the very first thing that God created was light. It was the very first thing he created. And he says, let us make man in our images. Let us make man in our language. Who's the us? I mean, he's ta- Jesus is here. He's part of the created order. Part, excuse me. He's part of, the, part of the creative process. He's not a created being. He helped to create the creation. He understands the creation. He knows what we're going through. He knows how we suffer. He knows how we hurt. He can be trusted. And I want to say this before I take it a step further. I want to remind you, everybody lives by faith. Everybody does. The only question is, in what is your faith? But everybody lives by faith. That's one reason why you hear me about once a year or maybe more often get irritable when I hear somebody say, we're a faith-based organization. That bugs me. Every organization is a faith-based organization. Every organization operates on a certain premises that they only believe in. In fact, one reason why Albert Einstein loved Michael Faraday is because he proved him wrong, even though Faraday was hundred percent sure that he was right. Everybody, including physicists, know, ah, we're just operating by faith. Don't be a faith-based organization. Be a Christ-based organization. It's about him, not your faith. So we must learn to trust him. Trust that he will get us through. Things will become clear if we trust him. 20, almost 20 years ago, when our family was still in Overland Park, some of our dearest friends had twins. They were about Jonathan's age. So they would have been seven-ish or eight-ish. And they were... um, as ADHD as you can get. I mean, they were bouncing off the walls, these two boys. In fact, literally bouncing off the walls. We, so this is a true story. Y'all see the, uh, the stained glass here? You can't see it online, but we, trust me, we've got it up there. One time they were cleaning the stained glass, which was about 30 feet off the ground, and they found two young boys' footprints in the dust of the stained glass. And we all knew, okay, it's the twins. Somehow they figured out how to climb the wall and get up there. These were wild boys and good boys, but wild boys. And the mother and father, they wanted a daughter so desperately. So the whole church got excited when she became pregnant now, expecting the third child. We got ready for it. They prepared the room for it. The church was celebrating. We were thinking about parties and so forth. And then I think it was a Saturday because I was home. That there was a knock on the door and I went and I opened the door and it was our friend. I don't want to say their names. And I could see by the look on her face it was bad news and she wanted to see Julie. And I let her in and as soon as she saw Julie she burst into tears. She'd lost the baby. She had a brother who was homeless. He was in his 50s and he lived on the Front Range in Colorado. He had, every, he had a lot of problems. And coincidentally, he called about the same time and said, I am desperate, I need help. Can I stay with you? And our friend said, you can, you can have the baby's room. You can stay here. She said, but on one condition, you will go to church with us every time we go. He came. It was close to Easter because not long after he moved in with them, we had them over to our house for Easter dinner. And on Easter Sunday, this guy who was really a pagan, he assaulted me. He at the table, he ridiculed the Christian faith like you've never heard. of He was so cynical. Sarcastic. One of the first questions was, so how much money do you take from the church? And I'm just, go, he really went after me at my table on Easter. I was like, I throw you out of here, man. You know, I'm not kin to you. They may be, but I'm not. He's really hard on me. Well, we started a Bible study with him. I don't mind saying his name, Jim. And a year later, guess what? I baptized Jim. And he became as strong a Christian as he had been a pagan a year or so ago when he sat at our table. And this is why I'm driving to this story. When we baptized Jim, my daughter, who was probably nine years old, said to me, she was all choked up. She said, Daddy, now I get it. Our friend's baby's in heaven. And now Jim's going to be in heaven too. God prepared that room. Now, look, I don't know how to attribute God to all these things. I'm not saying God took that baby's life. I don't believe that. But I do know that staying close to the light of Christ made sense out of what was otherwise a senseless tragedy. And that's what God does. That's why we say he's the light of the world. He sheds light on what would otherwise just be a tragedy. And let me end with this one. Peter says that even when we don't see him, we love him. Even though we don't see him now, we believe in him. So even now we can take great joy in the light of Christ. If you just think for a moment, the power of light for, for the eyes, all of our great works of art that draw their strength from the light. The, the, the rainbow, Julie and I were in uh, North Georgia. This was two years ago, Trey. We were in North Georgia. And on the back of the little deck where we were sitting, it was this beautiful, beautiful Appalachian Mountain, Southern Appalachians. And then the rainbow. And I just thought to myself, look at this. Not only does God give us a candle, not only does he give us light so we can see what's in the room and not stumble over bang our head against it or break it or whatnot. But he even sometimes smiles on us with the beauty of a rainbow. There's a reason for us to find joy in the journey of following Jesus, even when it's hard. I'm not saying it's not hard, but there's a reason to find joy. He is the light of the world. I, uh, I know enough about TikTok to have said that word, and now I've exhausted everything I know about it. But somehow or another, I got a TikTok video. If you don't know what that means, I think... You should feel pretty good about yourself. Um, <laughs> and I have no idea how to capture a TikTok video, but I could screenshot it. So I screenshot something. It's the sweetest little thing. You go online, Riley, R-I-L-E-Y, that's what you want to look up. Riley was born uh, with bad enough vision that she was legally blind. The family didn't know that until her first Christmas. And they began to realize she can't see. By the time she was two years old, she had gone to what must be one of the most satisfying professions in the world, optometry or that of the ophthalmologist to give people sight and to give them vision. And they fitted her with a special pair of glasses that corrected her vision. So I can't show you the TikTok video because I don't know how to, but I can show you a screenshot or two of little Riley getting her glasses. Look at the sweetness of that face. Can you see on the little face? She knows something cool is about to happen. So mama puts the glasses on. Now it's Christmas. So this is a Christmas tree and behind, they have their big screen television. And on the big screen television, they have a a simulated fireplace going. So mama puts the glasses on and I just want you to see, this is what the light can do for you. Look at that face. So when you don't know what to do with the Jesus, who is the light of the world, Well, stay focused on him, trust him, and why not go on and start now finding joy in him? He says, I am the light of the world. You follow me, you'll never walk in darkness, but we'll have the light of life. I'm going to end with this one. So here he is, our man, Michael Faraday, six lectures on the mathematics, physics, and chemistry necessary for a candle to burn. Like I said... Doesn't sound like a, you know, a very romantic thing to go to, but thousands wanted to show up. And as he spoke and this, what he considered to be his fav- very favorite presentation of all the presentations the men ever gave, he wanted to end with a Christian note. This natural philosopher, chemist, physicist, and inventor of the electric motor. So as he gets to the end of this sweet little book, The Chemical History of a Candle, our sweet Christian deacon in the Lord's church, elder in the church there in London, ends his lecture, his last words, by saying this. Indeed, he says, all I can say to you at the end of these lectures, for we must come to an end at one time or another, is to express a wish that you may in your generation be fit to compare to a candle. That you may, like it, shine as lights to those around you, that in all your actions, you may justify the beauty of the taper of the flame by making your deeds honorable and effectual in the discharge of your duty to love one another. That's our man, Michael Faraday. Christmas is around the corner, guys, and I wish you a Merry Christmas. When you get to Christmas, remind yourself of this. You have a world full of choices. Choose kindness and choose to model to those around you. Jesus Christ, the light of the world. Let's stand up and sing.